The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Each week, we're taking you behind the curtain to the world of football, business and other sports across the globe. And alongside me as ever today, uh, from The Athletic, is the football news reporter, Matt Slater. We're going to look today at Matt's exclusive story about the recent takeover at Burnley with his revelation that the new owners only borrowed £80 million and only put in £15 million up front to get the deal done. So should fans of Burnley or other clubs in similar situations be worried? We'll speak to American investor in football clubs, Jordan Gardner, to find out. We're also going to be joined by Spencer Owen of Hashtag United. We'll hear about the ongoing problems surrounding the future of non-league football. And we'll find out how he's managed to build a football club entirely from scratch. You can subscribe right now to The Athletic for just £3.99 a month. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just head to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. Um, so, Matt, your latest exclusive on The Athletic is the story surrounding the Burnley takeover. And the headline with this is that the new owners, ALK Capital, only put in around £15 million up front to fund it. So explain how that works and the story for us first, and then we'll bring in our guest. Okay, well, it's a, it's a slightly complicated tale, as they often are, and it was a long time in the making, just as the deal was. So Burnley, been owned by local businessmen for several years, done very well, punched above their weight on and off the pitch. These guys, uh, led by Mike Garlick, who has a big recru- recruitment consultancy business, didn't put money in, didn't take money out. And Sean Dyche has done the rest. Been for sale for about a year. About six months ago, it became I became aware that the front runners were this new-ish, new, certainly in the UK, private equity group, sports, sports investment group called ALK Capital, fronted by a man called Alan Pace. Alan previously, about a decade or so ago, had spent about 18 months uh, at Real Salt Lake, one of the MLS expansion teams. Uh, I think he was a president there uh, and then went back to basically to finance jobs, sort of Wall Street type jobs. I think his last one was Citibank. You know, so he's got a good track record in finance, has a, you know, a brief track record in, in U.S. soccer, but clearly loves football and has been eager to get into it and, you know, quit basically finance and has been focused totally on getting into European football, really, for the last uh, year. My story, which has... Um, you know, ruffled some feathers, upset some people, is really based on a lot of conversations with people who have either looked at Burnley or uh, understand the deal or have done similar deals with similar people around the same time. It is a surprisingly small world and everyone talks and a lot of people are talking about this deal. And I think that is quite interesting. And I think that's probably just because there haven't been that many Premier League takeovers of late. Certainly, takeovers where someone new is coming in, not an existing shareholder stepping up. And the story in a nutshell is that it's another leverage buyout of the type that we saw at Man United and caused enormous ructions, but we haven't really sort of seen much since because we've been talking about sovereign wealth funds or oligarchs or, you know, different types of people buying clubs. So I believe that the price for the club for about 84% of the shares is about 150 million perhaps a bit more, and the ALK themselves have put in no more than 15 million. I have since heard things that I think I might have been a bit generous there, that they've possibly put in less. So where's the rest come from? Well, they have borrowed most of it from 
MSD Capital, another name to throw at you. They are the family office, the private equity firm that has been set up to run Michael Dell's wealth. Dell Computers, you may well yeah. be using one now. That set up, that's been going about 20 odd years. Um, it's to manage his wealth. And they've been getting into football in a big way. And they have now lent money to Burnley, Southampton, Sunderland and Derby. So they've got four clubs, English clubs that they've lent money to. They, they, they lend at about 9% is about where it starts. We had that confirmed yesterday from Southampton. Their books came out and they've borrowed best part of 80 million from MSD at 9.14%. You know, and I hear this all the time. It's about nine and a half ish around there. You can include a bit more with, with, with fees and what have you. So ALK Capital have borrowed, I believe, about 80 million, maybe more, maybe less, but not much more, not much less to buy these shares and the rest and i think this is really interesting i think this is slightly different and this is one of the things that people have been talking about burnley for a while burnley have been accruing cash they've been sitting on cash they've not been spending it they had 42 million pounds we know publicly available records at company's house as of summer 2019 i think in the last 18 months they've accrued a bit more not quite at the rate they were accruing before because of the pandemic but i believe they were sitting on at least 50 million pounds which you buy, you buy, you buy the bank account. You buy normally you buy a lot of debt. But what was different about Burnley was you were buying cash. So clever deal. ALK have used some of the money in Burnley's account to pay for the shares, but also you know move forward, perhaps, perhaps spend some money this January. So that that's the story. The ALK, exciting, good story to tell, lots of energy, made lots of the right noises, but they haven't actually paid a great deal. For the club themselves up front they've borrowed some and they've used the club's own money to complete the deal the club have disputed haven't they some they've of, disputed some my numbers they've disputed yeah. my numbers okay. but they uh, that's about as far as they're willing to go okay let's bring in jordan gardner a football executive and investor based in america co-owner of dundalk in ireland of helsingor in denmark an investor in swansea as well given those terms of the deal uh, Jordan that Matt spoke about is this is this a good deal? Yeah, no. Um, first off, thanks for having me. It's very interesting, and there's been a lot of talk over here in the U.S. about it. I mean, I think the discussion is if you can get into a Premier League club for only 15 million pounds up front, all of a sudden there's a lot of interested investors in investing in the Premier League. You know, I I know Alan a little bit. I've had a couple of conversations with him. You know, he's a really sharp guy. You know, as you mentioned, he spent time in MLS. He's spent time in the investment banking world. The terms of this deal, in my mind, are very problematic. I think Matt kind of went through the terms in a really thorough way. But you know, coming into a club like Burnley that presumably needs some form of investment, whether that's in the squad, whether that's in the operating structure, enhanced staffing, you know, they've talked a lot publicly about globalization of the club, and that's going to require some form of investment. So how are they going to do that with basically putting very, very minimal amounts of capital into the club? So- I don't want to say they're setting their so- themselves up for failure, but you know, you're in the middle of a pandemic, they're dealing with a relegation battle, and now you're dealing with very limited amounts of capital. So it's just very, very problematic. And it, you know, I get it from their perspective. Of course, from an investor, you want to put as little money up front as you possibly can. And you know, MSD has been funding a lot of these purchases and a lot of their debt, and that's fine. But at the interest levels that they're charging clubs that can become problematic in the long run. So I see pros and cons to it, but I would not structure a deal like this. It can be very problematic. Well, that's interesting, Jordan, to hear you say that because, look, there has been pushback from, from Alan Pace to my story and you know some Burnley fans. But, but I think what's interesting is that as the dust has settled a little bit, the story came out last week and 
people have really started to sort of think about what Pace hasn't said. And they've looked at, you know, the Southampton numbers that came out yesterday and they're looking at the rest of the league. And other fans are talking to them about, well, you know, look, guys, it's fine when you're in the Premier League, but trust me, relegation is not a good place. And I think this is the this is the key point, really, that unless you're one of the big six clubs, possibly Everton, possibly Wolverhampton, you know, maybe Leicester, but pretty much 10 clubs that start a Premier League season, every Premier League season, face the existential threat of relegation. You're only a bad month away from your business being turned upside down. And I would like to think that ALK in their planning have at least factored in the next five years, 10 years, that they're going down once. I would have to hope so. I mean, I think the chances that they probably go down, I mean, they've stayed in the Premier League for nine seasons and statistically they are going to go down at some point in the next couple of seasons. And I think what's interesting about them is that they have a track record of bouncing straight back. So the last time they did, they came straight back. I think they've done it twice in, in, in a decade or so, you know, down and back. Great if you can do that. The problems start when you don't bounce back. And this is when you get into conversations about Sunderland and Wigan and Bolton. So that, so that, those are my fears. And those, I think, that's the reason I wrote the story. I think they're very legitimate fears. I think that, and I can't speak to Alan in terms of what the thought process is in this specific instance, but I think there are a lot of American groups that do not understand what a relegation entails, whether it's in the UK or other leagues. I mean, uh, again, I'm a very, very small shareholder in Swansea, but I got into the club the year it got relegated and to see the what happened you know stadium infrastructure investment all of a sudden went out the window and staffing got, got contracted and this was of course all before covid so i think it is an eye-opening experience for american ownership to deal with the concept of relegation and i guess just my hope is that they have a clear and concise plan saying look worst case scenario we go down this is the type of investment we're going to have to get back up because again they're going to have to invest in the club to get back up, even with parachute payments. So again, I'm going to assume they've thought through all these challenges, but you know, you never know. I, well, that was actually going to be a question I was going to put to you, Jordan, which, which was in this day and age now, surely in an era of global sports where there is a mu- much more knowledge about what goes on in in other countries and other continents, is there still within American investment groups? a lack of understanding on relegation. I think there's an understanding in a conceptual way. You know, you, you can watch the games on television. You can see Burnley playing West Brom. You can understand that relegation exists from an American perspective. But I do think going through it and understanding the actual financial metrics of how your club goes from, you know, 150 million pounds in revenue to 50 million pounds of revenue overnight because of relegation, how your employees lose their jobs and people are, you know, your fans are crying like, you know, I, I guess things you can see like the Sunderland documentary did open people's eyes up a little bit to it. But I do think you still sometimes see a bit of a kind of American way of looking at sports where we don't have relegation here. You have this secure system. And you know, I have conversations with some of my capital partners about, well, how much money do we have to budget this upcoming season on player wages not to get relegated? And I'm like, you can budget 10x and we can still get relegated. You can budget a half of what we have now and we cannot get relegated. Like there's still this, I, I guess a bit of misconception about how it actually works and the amount of like risk tolerance American investment groups have. What, why did you invest in Swansea out of, out of interest? I'm, I'm trying to try and paint a, quite a broad picture, I suppose, of what is attractive to investors in America 
um, when it comes to mid-sized community clubs like like Burnley and Swansea, for example? Yeah, I mean, for me on a personal level, again, the Swansea opportunity came about through various mutual connections I had, and it was a very, very small investment. The club was in a Premier League, and I was looking to do bigger things in European football. And I didn't want to make the mistake of other American groups where they came in, they bought big clubs. You know, I knew the guys that were at Austin, Aston Villa eight to 10 years ago, and that didn't go well. Sunderland, we've all heard the stories. Mm. So I said, look, if I want to get into this European football space, whether from a big investment perspective or put groups together to do that, I wanted to have a good sense of what this is like. And I felt one of the ways to do that was to become a very small investor in some of these clubs. And so, of course, it was also fun and exciting to be able to be in the owner's box, but it gave me access in a very, very small way. Of course, no decision-making whatsoever, but access to the club. And I was able to sit and speak with the COO at the time and speak to the sporting director and kind of soak it up. And from my perspective, it was really interesting to be in the room during all these conversations when the club was going through a relegation, was having to make decisions and saying, you know, these are decisions that you wouldn't have to make if you were an American North American sports franchise. So for me, massive learning curve for future projects. And that was my motivation. I think in general, a lot of American groups look at clubs like Burnley and Swansea and they say, look, like, you know, the top six kind of clubs in the UK, for instance, they're kind of out of reach financially. They might not be for sale. Can we take a, a Burnley and a Swansea, make it a consistent Premier League team and capture the television revenue? That's what's attractive to everyone, right? Can we make this a real business by capturing the television revenue? And I think that's what Burnley's done really well, right? They've, they've kept their expenses and their wages very low. They've stayed a consistent Premier League team and like, that's attractive. There's no doubt in my mind that's attractive to a lot of investors. And I'm just interested in, in, in something that I, I hear regularly from, from certainly from US investors, and, and we've alluded to it already with ALK and Burnley, and that this idea that British clubs punch below their weight commercially, it's almost like we don't know what we've got. We've, we have this sport that the world cares about, and you're in the Premier League, which is an amazing shot window, but with a little bit of American know-how, we can make it so much better. And I, and I do hear this quite a lot. And I, you know, ALK have been saying it as well. They're going to they're going to turn Burnley into Britain's favourite underdog, and you know, and, and sell that idea around the world. I mean, does that sound credible to you? I can see how it might help a tiny bit, but it's not going to change Burnley's world, is it? No, not at all. I think that's a that's a kind of American way of thinking that you can fix everything. <laughs> I mean, you know, Swansea. I think when they had Bob Bradley as the coach, an American coach, that created interest in the United States, for instance, in terms of their foreign viability. But, you know, Burnley is not a big club. It's not a sexy club unless they're bringing in players from markets, Indonesia, China, you know, whatever they're not, it's going to be very difficult for them to globalize the club. I mean, I think it's what they have going for them is the global television rights of the Premier League. These games are on everywhere across the world. And so that there's access and how do you capture that, that those eyeballs. But at the same time, I think it's very, very difficult to actually monetize that in any way and build your brand globally when you're such a small club, I think the clubs that can potentially do that are the Newcastles, right? Or maybe even the Sunderlands who have this big global brand to a certain extent, but Burnley, Swansea to a certain extent, you know, these kind of clubs, it's very, very difficult for them to do that. And I think it's a little bit um, misguided for American groups to think they can kind of crack this nut that doesn't exist. Yeah, and, and I've heard it before as well, Matt. I can remember interviewing uh, Rob Kuig, who's the the majority shareholder at Wickham before he before he took over Wickham from the fans trust, saying something similar. And Wickham were were sort of mid table League One at the time. And yes, they have been promoted into the championship. But you, I do wonder, 
I do wonder at times before the investment comes in, Jordan, whether the geographical realities of some of these clubs is, is really understood by some American owners. Then the other thing I was going to say to you as well, what, what's interesting with, with Wickham, who were owned by a fans trust, and you could say this with Burnley as well, given the money they had in the bank, both incredibly well run. And if you are a well run club, you know, Manchester United were debt free before the Glazers took them over. So if you're a if you're a well run club, are you more susceptible to these kind of takeovers? I think absolutely. I think the well run clubs are the ones that are the most attractive. I think it's not that exciting for a lot of investors to come in and say, it's kind of like buying a house, right? You want to buy a house that's kind of fixed up and you don't have to t- tweak too much. There are certain investors who are interested in buying the house to knock it down and start from scratch. But that takes time and money. And then you worry about, you know, relegation in terms of it, if it takes years to build that up. You know, for instance, our club in Denmark, you know, one of the challenges in retrospect is we bought a club that had a very young academy uh, on only a two-year-old academy. So we're looking to invest in youth infrastructure for many years into the future and getting actually very little in return in terms of first-team talent and sellable assets. So that's something that I think a lot of groups say, why don't we just buy something that's turnkey ready? And my guess is the guy, the ALK guy said, Burnley is that, right? Yeah, they're having a little bit of challenges this year, but they have a consistent model that works. Um, And to your first point, I would say, I think a lot of American groups, they just don't spend time on the ground in Europe and in the UK in this instance to actually like understand what the landscape's like. I think they take a kind of, you see a lot of absentee ownership. I think they take a kind of a 30,000 foot view and say, oh, this is what the landscape looks like. Not to say we have it all figured out, but like I spend two weeks a month in, in Europe and have for almost the last two years. And so that's why my mentality is very different from most American groups is, you know, I can kind of see what works and what doesn't and what actually would make sense in Europe. And I think it's, it's really hard on the outside looking in to, to have that mentality. Okay. So American groups might be a bit, a bit optimistic on the marketing side, but, but one idea I do again here frequently from Americans is this idea around multi-club models and you know consolidation and and i think and i think this is a a good idea certainly from a business point of view and it's happening and it's really taking off and look you know you're you're in your own way jordan an example of that aren't you you know you've got your club in 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 denmark and i know you've got a stake in dundalk right and you've got the smaller stake in swansea now we have been reporting a lot on this we've talked about it a lot on the podcast city football group yesterday well, it'll be two days by the time the podcast comes out, announced a new partnership with Club Bolivar. And I saw you very quickly congratulating the owner, uh, Marcelo Clure, right, of, uh, of, of Club Bolivar, who also, of course, has a stake in Granada, so already new CFG, and has a stake in Inter, Inter Miami Beckham's team. So, you know, the, the networks and the web that is that is developing, that is becoming, you know, global football. I, I just find it fascinating. So, you know, the global multi-club model, Jordan. I mean, it's 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 here to stay, right? I think with Brexit, it's only going to accelerate in terms of finding clubs in continental Europe, finding clubs in developing markets where you can actually develop the talent, get them to a point where they can actually now get a work permit in the UK, because that's obviously the biggest challenge that many of these clubs are going to have. I think what's attractive from at least an American perspective is more of a diversification, right? If I invest three or four or $500 million in a Premier League club, yes, I'm putting all my time and energy and resources into that club, but maybe we don't make Europe that year. Maybe we get relegated that year. Maybe we're, there's, you know, whatever, there's a lot of variability. We're investing in a lot of different clubs with some different business models, whether maybe we have a second division club in France and that's a different business model. Maybe we have a developing club in Mexico or South America. I think that's what's interesting and attractive. What, what I think people are a little bit confused about about the Bolivar situation is 
you know, City Football Group is not buying Bolivar, right? They're they're partnering with that club kind of for best practices and modernizing the club. And as you mentioned, it's really very relationship driven with Marcella, who is very, very well connected in global football. So I think for me on the outside, that's just really interesting to see. Is that the next model for the City Football Group to come in to many clubs in, let's just say, developing football markets, India, China, Australia, the US, Mexico, and help these clubs develop the professionalization of their clubs and help them with their academies. I noticed in the press release, they talked about data analytics and, and kind of sharing best practices in the way City Football Group does. So you know, I'm a bit skeptical when it comes to these partnerships, right? I think you mentioned, Matt, the Sligo-Everton uh, Sligo partnership, and a lot of it's just on a piece of paper, you know, it's, you know, it's, we're going to share ideas. We're going to maybe play a game once a year. What is like, what is the actual execution piece of these partnerships? But I think the resources of the city football group, you know, at these clubs cannot be understated. So, you know, I think it'll be really interesting to see what that landscape looks like. And you're right. I think there is a ton of interest in the multi-club ownership model. The question is, is there the cap, the appetite from a capital perspective, because it's incredibly capital intensive to buy three, four, five clubs in multiple countries, and then it comes to execution. So that that would be the only challenge, I think. And, and from the American's perspective, obviously those multi-clubs, we're talking about all, all of them playing football, of course, but um, have we moved on, if we're talking about sharing best practice, from owners of big American sports franchises looking to invest in British football clubs as the Cronkies did, as the Glazers did, you know, as as the Fenway Sports Group did with Liverpool. Have we has, has that era gone now? Do you think? I don't think so. I mean, you have the 49ers guys at Leeds and they just yeah. are increasing their equity stake at Leeds. So um, I don't necessarily think it's gone. I do think a lot of those investment groups, if they're looking at European football, are becoming more sophisticated. They're looking at other markets. They're seeing opportunities in Spain, France, Italy. You know, so I think that next batch might not just be UK focused. Of course, the UK, you know, the Premier League is the most popular league for the most part in the US and you know, everyone's the, the language uh, similarities and the culture. It's very easy for Americans to look and say, yeah, we want to go buy a team in the Premier League, but it's becoming a little bit more sophisticated. And I do think what I'm hearing a lot, which I tend to agree with is the Premier League is just, it's very oversaturated in terms of you're going up against, you're trying to not get relegated against, you know, billionaire groups out of China and billionaire groups out of the Middle East and billionaire groups out of the US. Like you can go to Spain and yeah, you have a four, five, six, seven teams that are extremely well capitalized, but after that, you're looking at a lot more community-based clubs and, and your, your, your you know, chances of success kind of skyrocket. Yeah, there's not quite as much television revenue, but the risk-reward seems to start to skew towards it being more interesting in some of these other markets. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again at some point. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Well, of course, the eyes of the nation were on non-league football last weekend as clubs like Chorley and Marine took centre stage in the FA Cup. And obviously we were reminded just how big a role that these clubs play in their communities. Now the third round has gone, though. Most of the clubs are left without any football to play and an increasingly uncertain future. Indeed, uh, a dozen National League North clubs wrote to the government on Tuesday demanding their loans for the season be covered as grants instead. And beneath that, there's been more talk of cancelling the second consecutive season in the wake of the COVID crisis. Uh, well, joining us now, uh, Chairman and Founder of Non-League Hashtag United, Spencer Owen. We'll talk about how the club has been built up in just a moment. But how difficult, first of all, is this situation for you and everyone involved in the non-league game? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think I think um, it's difficult for everyone in any game, in any industry right now. There's no, there's no getting away from that. Um, I think what's adding a little bit of uncertainty and, uh, and trepidation to our scenario right now is this, this unknowing or, or perhaps more this fear of what is probably going to happen, which is what happened last year, which is the fact that what we have played will mean nothing. Don't get me wrong. It's an incredibly hard job for the decision makers, especially when they're kind of quite convoluted in, in who actually makes the decision and who actually takes authority for the decision. But someone's ultimately got to stand up and do it. And whilst... The powers that be might feel that last year's decision to null and void the league was the best decision to make at that time. I definitely think it is completely objective in me saying that since then, that decision has been proved to be a mistake uh, based on what has happened, various other decisions that we can talk about that happened since then. The fear is it's going to happen again. So in isolation right now, nulling and voiding this current season probably makes sense. I'm not going to argue with that. We haven't played enough games for it to mean anything. And there's so much more going on. The big, the big challenge for us, uh, those people that, that are kind of uh, arguing against this decision, is it's very clear, it's very important that we point out we're not trying to play any more football. I think that's the first thing that any sort of uh, detractors say to us. Like, but it's not safe to play. We know, we agree, we're on your side. Um, yeah. It's just about what we do with the football that has been played. And I think that's where the, the area of contention arises. Uh, so this is very much a, a sporting argument, not a financial argument at the moment. Well, so I, I speak from my own position, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as Hashtag United. So we're a very unique football club. And one of the benefits we find ourselves in right now is that we're not ultimately threatened by this current COVID situation because our model is not about people through the door. Of course, we want them to come. We have some amazing fans that do. But we, we also are a nomadic club still, as we haven't got our own ground yet, which we're working on. So we don't even... Even on a normal season, we don't capitalise on things like bar money because that goes to our landlord. So we're yeah. not actually that much worse off financially. So I'm very lucky in that situation. Unfortunately, that's not the case for the vast majority of non-league football clubs. So I, I do feel like I speak for a lot of them. And I, don't, I know that I do in the conversations I'm having with various football clubs um, who aren't so lucky. And I think sometimes that's why it's important that we have a lot of faces teeing up this argument, not just myself, because the easiest and quickest thing someone can say about my club is we've been in non-league for only a few years. Uh, we're you know a completely different model to all the other clubs. And for, most importantly, we stand something to gain from not nulling and voiding the season because we're mathematically the best team in our league for the last yeah. two seasons. Um, that was all, all true. That's all true. However, unfortunately, the people that don't stand anything to gain aren't saying anything. Yeah, you know, They're being very quiet. So someone has to. What difference does it make to you then, whether you're in the ninth tier of of English football or the eighth tier? I mean, for me personally, it's, it's a massive difference. You know, the whole uh, story of this football club, Hashtag United, it's about momentum and it's about um, us really kind of this, this sort of pie in the sky, sky's the limit mentality that we have. And so far, we've been very good. 
at executing our ambitions. You know, we've, we've won our only season that's counted in non-league. We won the title, our first ever season in non-league. Since then, we've had the best points per game two seasons in a row in the, in the level above. So we're on an upward trajectory and that's not just us. There's people actually stand to lose a lot more than we do. Now, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about teams like Jersey Bulls who have won every single game they have played across two seasons and they face the additional loss leader. The fact that to get into the non-league in an island in Jersey, they were forced to pay for the flights of away teams for every single game. This is a step six team. Okay, mm. that's the step below that we're at. Um, there's no money at this level. They don't pay any of their staff. They don't pay any of their players. But they're having to pay hundreds of thousands of pounds in air travel. This is not just the case of saying non-league is amateur or semi-professional football and there's no jobs being lost or there's no uh, money being lost. There's huge things at risk. And when you combine all these people, all the teams, all the players, all the um, volunteers, the fans, talk about hundreds of thousands of people and there's a lot of health and mental health uh, elements to consider as well. For us, though, we want to keep that journey going. We want to level out. I want to get to a point in the season where if hopefully this isn't going to keep going on, right? But if we were in a COVID situation, we were just one of these mid-table teams in mediocrity. I, I'm telling you now, I still have a strong opinion about the situation, but I would then have the option of saying, like a lot of these clubs are, well, we don't need to worry about it because we're, we're at the league we should be at. We're not in the right league. So, so right. Get it. Tell us how many games you've played, what your record is this season. Tell us last season, when last season was abandoned, how many games you'd played and what your record was then. Well, we're currently top of the league and uh, we've played 12 games. So some teams in our league, for example, the team in second place have played 15. So they played three games more than us. We're still two mm. points above them. However, some teams have played eight games. We're actually considered in non-league one of the leagues that's got a lot of games done. We've actually played 20 games this season, including okay. cup competitions. Yeah. So we've played quite a lot, um, but obviously only 12 of them in the league. Uh, so we're two points clear of a team with three games in hand on us. There is a team called Hadley who are sixth, only played eight games. If they won all their games in hand, they would actually go above us this year. Uh, we have played them and beaten them, but that's by and large, this is where the points per game argument it's difficult for this year because there's nowhere near enough games played. Uh, last year, we were also top. We also had the best points per game. Uh, oh, sorry, actually, I tell a lie. Last year, we weren't top. We were second. We had three games in hand on first with two points behind them. What's crucial to our current sort of proposition, if you like, is that there is a, a lot of teams and a lot of cases who are, it's the same team, both seasons in a row, that they're clearly at the wrong level, which is normal for non-league. You know, you a lot of movement. Um, and there's just no benefit to holding these teams back. There's no benefit to the teams in the league with them because they're going to, these leagues are mostly one promotion spot up for grabs. So they're going to have the same problem next season. There's no, uh, clearly no advantage to the money. And let's be honest, it's supposed to be some professional, but there's teams paying money, sometimes significant money to these players. And that's all out the drain. You know, when you take on a risk as a chairman, and once again, this is not me necessarily defending my own position because we actually have a very um, sustainable business model at our football club. So we have a lot of, great business partners that allow us to have a much bigger revenue, I'll be honest, than any teams at our level. Uh, but we have a lot more expenditure. We have staff, you know, we are having to furlough people at this current point in time. Uh, we also have an esports team, which is a whole different side of things, who are all professional athletes. Athletes is the way in uh, quotation marks. But, um, it's a different podcast. Yeah, they're competing with guys, you know, against Man City players, for example. So we're at yeah. the top of the game in there. So we have other costs, but there are teams that spend a lot more money than us in our league, for example. When you lose that money as a chairman um, on, a, on a gamble, if you like, to get promoted because your team failed, that, you can stomach it. You tried and you failed. But when you don't get to finish the job two years in a row, uh, absolutely no plan as to what would happen in the event of an unfinished season. Because we all knew nine months ago when we proposed to the FA that they shouldn't null and void, that this season was going to be affected. So, so there are no articles within the league, your league's constitution about what would happen 
with a curtailment of, of the season. So the only as thing you under, was, as you understand it. Yeah, the only thing that's been brought up to us in the past was this number of 75%, which of 75% of games needed to be played. So here's the I've obviously ex- I've kind of explored every single option here. The only argument where you could uh, feasibly suggest that we where why we were null and voided and higher leagues weren't, because this is the crucial timeline as well. So we played our last game at the start of March when COVID kicked off last year. Six days later, our every single non-league was uh, expunged. Six days. Looking at all the professional leagues or semi-professional in the National League above that, it was months before they came to a conclusion. Yeah. And that conclusion, in every single case, not only was a result of a league vote, which none of us got, that vote always was never for null and void. It was points per game in every instance when the season hadn't been finished. Sure, there were some playoffs played. You look at a team like Wickham, they wouldn't be in the championship right now if it wasn't for points per game. They were eighth. They got bumped up to third. They then won the playoffs. So the reason that our decision was made so quickly, first and foremost, is because there was an understanding that, first of all, um, non-league clubs needed some certainty. They needed to know what was going on. They needed to know if they needed to furlough people, if they needed to release contracts or whatever with their players. Because, unfortunately, we're putting anyone from... Originally, it was the first step of non-league that was under this decision, which includes a National League, you know, conference prem, all the way down, which is a tremendously big you know, a wide array of teams to treat the same way. You've got very different budgets. You know, they've got professional clubs in, in National League. That's why National League got deemed to be elite and therefore separated, essentially as franchised off English football mm-hmm. pyramid from mm-hmm. that period of, above because we can't get in it anymore. Uh, but then from step three, there's still teams that have got professional players, still teams that have got yeah. six, seven contracted guys spending a lot of money oh, yeah. being treated the same as a step seven team uh, that have you know no expenses at all. And... Crucially, because I, I don't mention this enough either in my sort of campaigning, this also includes the women's game. Like the women's oh, game yeah. from the third tier down, so that's just the top two tiers, the Championship and the Super League that are exempt from this, were all null and voided, were all expunged. So there's a lot of different teams with different scenarios. Um, but yeah, we were, so getting back to the point of the 75%, um, we were told at the time they, they were, didn't feel comfortable using points per game in our leagues for two reasons. One, there was no precedent. There was no precedent of points per game being used in an incomplete season. And then I don't know how official this is, but this was something that was banded around by various league people that we needed to have 75% of the league played. For example, in our league, uh, some teams had played 80%. There was a couple of teams that had played as little as 69, 70% of their games. The big elephant in the room here is the weather, right? That does That is what kills non-league teams in this regard. If we'd had, we had a really bad January last January yeah. for weather, if we've got one more game played in every step five, step six, step three, step four league, that 75% argument wouldn't have been valid. Mm. Um, the leagues above that were using points per game mostly had had 75% played. So there is that discrepancy. But crucially, the precedent that wasn't there was set within weeks of the decision to null and void our league when all the other leagues did it. So I do think the way we can, if we can cure this, is some people to stand up and go with all the best will in the world, we probably made the wrong decision. We probably made the wrong decision last year because they used the word, word expunge. Most of us agreed maybe canceling the season last year wasn't the worst thing. But because they expunged the results, theoretically, they don't exist anymore. They now can't, they'd have to jump over their own legal jargon from an FA perspective to actually use those results. Because what we're proposing mm-hmm. at the moment, I think, is the best possible scenario for everyone, which is a lot of people have been saying for a while you combine the two leagues' uh, matches. Uh, to make a points per game because you've got well over a season played then with the, for example, 12 games we've played this year and the 29 we played last year, for example. The the challenge you still have then is that you are potentially going to have to relegate teams who haven't been mathematically relegated. That being said, 
there were teams who had mathematically achieved promotion that were denied it. And there were teams that had mathematically been relegated that were saved of it. So I de- I've always said, I don't see why you'd reward the worst performing teams and punish the better ones. It's anti-sporting you know, mentality. But the solution we have now is crucial, which is there was a planned reform and restructuring of non-league coming. It was going to happen this year. They delayed it because of COVID. They very much want to implement it for next season. Our suggestion, and we're developing a whole, and I say our, it's not me, it's a lot of different clubs involved that we're putting together, is a proposal which incorporates all the FA's plans of restructuring, allows points per game successful teams to be promoted, and doesn't relegate a single team. This is the most crucial thing. It means you end up with a few more teams, maybe than planned in the season after, but then you just relegate a few more the year after, and crucially, everyone knows what they're getting into at the start of the season, which we didn't this year. So there's a proposal we'll be sharing on that. Um, unfortunately, the heads of the Trident Leagues, which is the three step three non-leagues, the uh, Ishmi and the Northern and the Southern, have already made their recommendation that the league should be null and void, which is essentially what made the decision happen last year. The difference is they've said they're going to they're going to survey clubs a little bit more this year. And there's a whole load of bureaucratic reasons as to why I think that process is flawed as well. But um, that's where we are. Well, I was just thinking, I mean, it just reminds me of the conversations that I was having you know, a few tiers up where there were the same rows about points per game and whether you should do it, should be weighted, unweighted, the Tranmere situation. And it just, it just, it just cascades down the league. And, and I, it's, it's interesting that you made that point about the FA and how hasty they were in making this call. And I do think they regret it now, but I, but I'm going to give them some credit and, and just say they were really concerned about that furlough issue and yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that need for certainty. And of course your club is unusual in that you have financial security. Do you, yeah. do, do you, do you see that? I mean, they were, in a, they were in a bit of an impossible situation. Yeah. So again, first and foremost, I, I definitely acknowledge how difficult this is. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, given the information everyone had at the time, things would have been done that differently. It's more about how we react now. The, and like I said, I don't necessarily have any issue with the cancelling of the season. It was the expunging of the results. That's the key difference. You know, it, it seemed unnecessary, to be honest. Like, why couldn't we just say no one's getting promoted and relegated? But to have, all these guys, remember, 99% of these guys, they have other jobs, right? These footballers, they work really hard. I actually, I've, I've, I've got a, a bias here, but I actually think it's one of the hardest forms of football to play. Not in terms of ability, but in terms of these guys are going out. Some of them doing manual labour jobs, for example eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And then they've got to go and train and play multiple times a week. So it's in t- for no money or for very little money. It's incredibly taxing to be told everything you've done, every training session, every preseason, every match meant nothing. It doesn't even exist on the website anymore. Now we're very lucky that we film all our games and put them on YouTube. So I say to all my guys when they're feeling down, well, it did exist. It, def- you it can, definitely happens. You can yeah. watch it back, yeah. you know, yeah. um, you know, even silly things from a football club perspective, like, do you keep the records of those games? Do I say to this player who hit 50 caps for the club or 50 appearances that he didn't hit 50 appearances for the club and he has to do it again? Or, you know, silly things like that. So they could have done that. There's literally, I don't understand, apart from the maybe legal reasons, a re- there's no reason why they had to null and void the league because that data being there always could have been handy. We did acknowledge at the time the next season was going to be promoted. If this was... Uh, you know, a, a pandemic that we knew at the time was going to be limited to two months, three months, four months. It meant we couldn't complete the season, but next season would not be affected. It probably was the right decision, but that was never the case. We all knew it. And that's before the new strain came. We all knew next season was going to be affected. The season didn't start till September. You know, we were sent out there. Our first game in the season was our, our debut in the FA Cup from a hashtag perspective. First time we ever played in it. September the 2nd we played. So it's a month later than we'd normally have started the season. You know, there's been a lot of... Um, 
desire to get these FA competitions done, the FA Vars, the FA Cup. And of course, from a non-league perspective, we want to do them. They're massive for us. Mm. But we're very quick to celebrate the, the, you know, the Marine story and the Crawley story and all these great stories of these clubs. And it's like we just forget about what happens to them 51 weeks of the year. We just care about what happens to them in that one third round if they're lucky enough to get there. Like how mental to think the Marine won't play another game this season now. That was it. You, you mentioned your women's team earlier who are in the fourth tier, aren't they, of yep. the of the women's game. I, my personal view is that not only women's football, but women's sport has been uh, treated abhorrently throughout these these COVID crises. Uh, you know, it, it's all right for you if you're a, a lad at a Premier League academy to to be able to keep training in a previous lockdown. But if you're a girl at a netball academy affiliated to a netball Super League club, you can't keep training. I mean, it just it, it it's just not on, quite frankly. Um, what is what is the situation with your women's team, and, and what are you doing on on that side to to try and get some parity at least so that they're treated in a similar way to the men. Yeah, I and mean, that, that's the big word there is they don't have it, you know. So our women are in the fourth tier, which is called the National League Division One Southeast. Okay, so it's it's used under the National League banner. Okay, straight away, they haven't had the same treatment as the Men's National League. It's, it, mm. you, you, we have we given a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of administrational things, which for our club aren't too much of a problem, but from I sure are a problem for a lot of the teams at our level to, to be made to feel like we're a National League entity with the women's side. We have to play at a certain ground, obviously. You know, you have to have certain... Again, as a nomadic club at the moment, uh, we have to ground share. We have to ground share with a team, women's games being Sundays, that are prepared to give us priority because part of the National League rules are that they can schedule a game at any minute. And if you haven't got a ground, that's incredibly hard, but you need, you're need you playing second fiddle. So those rules are fine because we accept they're part of being at that level. But then when something like this happens and they go, well, actually, we're treating you exactly as we treat a Sunday League football team. No disrespect to Sunday League football. I play it and I love it. Yeah. But I expect Sunday League football to go away. I don't expect the powers that be to tell us that this National League team are the same. And that is, what, and that is what's happening right now. So, yeah, when we, when we put a, um, a kind of appeal together last year, we incorporated women's football into that. We tried to get the support of many women's teams as much as, as that as well because we think it's just as important. Unfortunately, they haven't got the same level of voices probably speaking up for them or the same amount of people prepared to listen. Uh, is, is the truth be told. So yeah, that, that definitely needs to come hand in hand with whatever decision is made. And I hope, I hope it does. But that is, is, is really out of our hands, unfortunately. Spencer, we have listeners, believe it or not, all over the world. We even have <laughs> listeners who are older and less hip than me and Mark. So can we perhaps explain a little bit about Hashtag United? You know, remarkable story. You know, give, give, me, give me your sort of elevator pitch. Give me your two minute history. How did you... How did you get here? So, yeah, my background is in making YouTube content. I've been doing it for over a decade and I uh, make a lot of football content. And I was lucky enough to have a really strong support on my channel, sort of around the 2 million subscriber mark on YouTube. And uh, I've done a lot of big sort of YouTube football uh, matches in the past. One of them uh, is kind of like a YouTube version of Soccer Aid. We called it the Wembley Cup. And we had uh, one of them, we had 35,000 people at Wembley watching it. We had Steven Gerrard playing it. Uh, lots of ex-pros and big names. So it's a, it's a huge deal in the YouTube community. After doing that, I decided I loved that so much. I wanted to start making more regular football content, actually playing the game, not just talking about the game. So um, I got my mates together, all of which, most of which, pretty average footballers. Uh, most of us had played together at school, university, whatever. Um, and we started playing games on YouTube. 
We used the name Hashtag United because originally it had been a seven-a-side team that I started with. I worked in football social media. So my background was I used to work for Vincent Company uh, as his sort of social media manager when he's at Man City. The year they won the season for the first time. I'm not saying I was directly involved, but I think some of my <laughs> tweets definitely helped. Um, I, uh, I worked for oh. a football YouTube channel called Copper 90. Uh, so I've done a lot of stuff around football and the original players in Hashtag all worked in football social media. We called ourselves Hashtag United. We thought it was a funny name and we went with it. When it came to making them a bit more uh, proper on YouTube, we decided to keep the name. First of all, because I wanted it to be bigger than myself. I didn't want it just to be Spencer's team. I knew that I wanted to build an actual football club. And second of all, I loved what it did because, yes, it ruffles some feathers. Yes, it flies in the face of football kind of traditionalism, but mm. you can't ignore it. I knew this year when we, when we were in the FA Cup, if we got to a certain round, the BBC would put us on. I knew they would because you can't not put a team called Hashtag United on. Like it, so that's, that's why people, it, it makes me laugh sometimes when people challenge the name. If we were called Brentwood Athletic, which is where I live, mm. no one would care. No one would no. care what we what? did. I'm, I'm going to jump in there because I'm from Brentwood too. And I know a little bit about the Essex Senior League. I also support South End. So I, uh, I know some of those people whose feathers have been ruffled. Yeah. Now, what do you say to old fogies like me who see you on our patch in Essex? You've come up the hard way. We've been around for the best part of 100 years and we've, yeah. we've paid our bills. Some of them, not always on time. <laughs> we, are, we, you know, we, we feel we, we're where we deserve to be. Yeah. Who the hell are you? It's funny you say that. So I actually was born at home uh, right behind Roots Hall Stadium. So my mum and dad lived on a road in Westcliff right behind the stadium. And um, I went to school in Southend. And I've actually emailed Southend today because we might be having a pre-season friendly with them next year. I like you now. Seems ridiculous (laughs) because uh, we don't even know where next season starts. But yeah. So that's one thing I'd like to set the record straight. And I have done many times with myself. My background is in non-league in many ways. So like my dad's a physio. He's our physio now. He was a physio of clubs like Brentwood Town, uh, East Thurrock United, all these kind of Essex non-league teams. The management team of East Thurrock are basically our management team now. Uh, half the players are at our club now. So these aren't these aren't accidents. I was born and raised in non-league, and I'm definitely not a um, traditionist for the sake of it. When I think something can be improved, but I'm very much not you know against the 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 old way of doing things, and I love it. And I've been born and raised that way. And um, what I would say to anyone that doesn't like the fact that we're new and doing something differently, I would say it would be like some, I know sport is different because you have emotions, but it would be like someone saying to a country that has just got a brand new state of the art subway system, but England created one in the 1800s. It's brilliant. <laughs> it doesn't work and there's no air conditioning, but we've got history. So what do we never improve it? We never improve it ever again. There is place for new things. We're so not you're the Jubilee line extension. <laughs> I, I don't know if we are, but I know that we are an interesting uh, model of a football club. And I think there's room for us. I think there's room for us and there's room for the old. I think that if anyone gets past the name, because that's the main obstacle for a lot of people, and actually looks at what we do, it's just a tremendously positive football club. You know, we went out of our way to incorporate a women's team. You know, we've added a youth team. We did both those things during COVID last year, uh, where teams were unfortunately folding left, right and centre. Why weren't we having to fold? Because we've got a really genuinely good model for a football club. It's a sustainable model. We're not buying the league. We're not spending more money than our competitors are. And we're winning the leagues. So I think people should look up and you you don't have to copy us or you don't have to uh, want to be us. But I think we deserve some sort of element of respect. It's not for me to blow smoke at me, Spencer, but um, you are, um, whilst, whilst there are modern elements to what you're doing, you are still um, building a football club based on a community at its heart. Now, the fact that that community is an online community, is a YouTube community, is a whatever, is a FIFA community, 
it's still a community. And uh, interestingly, when I was driving home from Crawley at the weekend and I was listening to the Marine chairman on Five Live, even the Marine chairman said, oh, we think we're the only, still think we're the only club whose name doesn't, is not based on the, the, the town, the city, the venue yeah. where we play. And I actually immediately, before I even knew you were coming on this, I actually thought of, of you guys at that point. And they were, they were formed out of a pub community, yeah. the Marine pub. They yeah. took the name from there and that's what, and that's what they became. It's, it's not that I mean, much different because no. your online community for a lot of, you know, teens, 20-somethings, is the equivalent of a pub community of 50 years ago. And yes. especially in today's climate, right, when people can't even go Absolutely. to the pub, they can yeah. watch our guys stream on Twitch. You actually don't lose that social element. Port Vale, by the way, are another one that aren't actually a place. So there's actually yes. quite a few yeah, te yeah. teams out there that yeah. have steeped in history that don't have a place yeah. name. Interestingly, yeah. when Wraith we did it, there you go. You know, I'm sure there's loads and certainly lots of non-league. I mean, I remember when we tried to join non-league, we were told we had to change our name. And I fought back on it and I said, ah. look, we're an existing, yeah, our name's trademarked, we're an existing brand, for want of a better word. We have hundreds of thousands of followers. Like, you can't just ask us to change our name when right. there's other examples of teams. For, this is the kind of irony of it. Again, it's non-league, but there's a team, and no disrespect to them, there's a team in our league called Lopez Tavares, which is a Portuguese name. And all of us just assumed it's a place in Portugal because it sounds cool. A lot of their players are Portuguese. Lots of time for those sorts of teams. There's a team called FC Romania, for example. Yeah, yeah. Looking into it further, Lopez Tavares is the name of the chairman. That's just right. his name. <laughs> right? So I'm essentially being told I could make a team called Spencer Owen FC before I could make a team called Hashtag United. So obviously we challenge that. And um, sometimes you do have to do that. But yeah, I think look, I, I challenge anyone that doesn't like what we do to actually just take a moment and watch it. You know, watch the community, look at the comments online from our fans, look at the, the joy on people's faces when they get a hashtag kit or meet a hashtag player. And it's a tremendously positive thing. So I think it's great for the game. If you don't yeah. believe that new teams can come in, challenge the status quo and create history from scratch, you're just accepting everything the way it is forever for the rest of time. That seems a really good place to leave it. Yeah. Uh, it's always very good talking to you. I hope you come on again at some point. Uh, I wish you well for the next few weeks and trying to sort everything out. But thank you. Thanks, Absolutely. guys. Uh, that's it. Thank you very much to our guests and to Matt. And I'll be back on Monday with David Ornstein. Bye-bye. The Athletic.